Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation. I'm Robin, and today we will be discussing Chapter 4, Will the Wise. Today's coffee is Pete's Dark Roast, and uh, nothing too fancy, but I am drinking it from my uh, my Tumblr that has the Robin logo on it. Robin as in Boy Wonder from DC Comics. Uh, it's funny, I actually don't have a lot of stuff with Robin's logo, which is partially because for a long time I didn't like the association, but over the last several years I've actually, I'm, I'm choosing to own it. And, but it's surprisingly difficult to actually find Robin's logo, like, already on things, like, like this Tumblr, for example. Most of the time it's, uh, it's like you have, like, there are plenty of stickers and decals and stuff like that, but trying to find things like this is surprisingly difficult. So, but I really like this Tumblr, I use it, I use it a lot. And now that we've acquired coffee, let's proceed with contemplation. So this episode starts with a bang. Joyce's car roars onto the Hawkins Middle School property, doesn't bother to park in a traditional parking space, and she goes barreling into the school looking for looking for Will, but runs into Dustin first. That's when Lucas runs in and says, the field. I like the kind of the split up of that, the fact that Mike stayed with him. I mean, he says, I found just found him like this, but Mike stayed there with him while Lucas went to go get the rest. Although it did kind of occur to me why didn't they just use the walkie-talkies like they had been all of the previous episode. Maybe they were out of range, but considering how far away they got with their walkies in season one, I don't see why that would be a problem here, but it doesn't really matter. I just thought it was kind of something, it was just something I noticed. Him bursting in through the door and going, the field! You know, it works, like, it, you get, you're caught up in the moment and you don't really think about it unless you're paying, I guess, close attention like this. The whole scene, though, is intercut with what's happening on the field with this 360-style shot where Will is, looks like he's having a seizure or some such, while we're seeing, at the same time, what's happening to him in the Upside Down. Part of me wants to say that they, they lean a little too hard on this, they, they linger on it a little too long, that it, it feels almost a little dragged out, but it is really successful in ramping up the tension, not just from what Will is experiencing, but also what Joyce and the kids are experiencing. I mean, the kids are all having to watch this interaction between Joyce and Will. But I do also think they lean, a, they linger a little long on the horror aspect of it. From there, we go into the title sequence, and afterwards, Joyce is taking him home. No point of view switch. The kids are speculating, okay, this is getting worse. Two episodes in two days. Max just admits, okay, that totally freaked me out and valid. Lucas speculates, do you think it is True Sight? He asks Mike that and Max, of course, says, what is True Sight? To which Mike just offers the slightest little head shake. Mm -mm. So Lucas, you know, dismisses it. You know, nothing. Never mind. I, I really do understand what what's happening there from all sides. You know, it's easy to see here and then in other scenes later, as we'll get to them, why Max feels excluded because she is being excluded. Even if she doesn't know why, there is a level of, yeah, but no, you're just being left out because of emotional reasons, but also for necessity. And this is when we get the amazing scene between Joyce and Will at their house at the kitchen table. You know, Joyce asks him about what really happened. She says, you need to trust me and I, I want to help you, but I can't if you don't, if you don't tell me the truth. I think the performances on their own make this work. You buy into that trust, but it's impossible to say because we also have the past season and knowing what their relationship is and knowing the kind of person that <laughs> Joyce is. But I mean, really knowing what their relationship is. I mean, we've been talking about the level of trust that they share already in this season. And so having that 
to build on really makes the scene work. There's a, you know, there's a combination of direction and, and acting happening here where it's this, the way that he is able to build toward this emotional release, the way that he's keeping it all really restrained. And he seems pretty like even keeled at the beginning. And then as things come, come out, the way it ramps up to that is just, it's so relatable. Like in moments like that, where you're experiencing emotion overtaking you and like you're letting something out that you haven't before. It's just like, he just captures that so completely. And I think I think you have to understand what's happening to him before really it starts happening, like understanding how scared he is and having this experience with him before we start to lose will, before the the lines start to blur between him and the mind flare and between him and his possession. And when, and that even really starts to happen in this episode. So it's not like we wouldn't have felt this, but getting to see it and having him have this emotional breakdown with Joyce and understanding in his own words what's happening here, it's key to get the full emotional weight of what then happens to him throughout the rest of the season. I noticed that in some of the cutaways and the flashbacks, there's included in that is the barely there clip from chapter one when Mike came out of the arcade and kind of snapped him out of it. So it's that shot where he kind of looks over his shoulder. And I thought that was really cool to include in terms of the edit because it sort of I, I think it's a really subtle way of saying will is still in there like there's still that self-awareness he's still got a, f- a foot in the real world you know his, you know his his real self and as far as the cutaways and flashbacks go like just like with the av club room last time these these cutaways aren't strictly necessary i think the the scene would work without them but i think the reason that they work so well here is precisely because of the same reason they worked last time. It's it's showing you what Will is thinking and how he's feeling, you know, in the moment as they're happening in real time. He says to Joyce, I just want this to be over, which is the exact same phrase she said to Hopper. And the way his voice cracks when he says that is just, it's just heart-wrenching. And I adore the, the scathing look she gives the drawing down on the table. It's almost like a promise, like, I'm coming for you, which, yeah, don't want to mess with Joyce Byers. And she then makes the promises to Will of like, I will help you. And she made the same promise last season with I will find you, but right now I need you to hide, you know, but she makes these promises and Joyce delivers. It's also kind of an interesting inversion of the fact that Hopper is called out multiple times by Eleven for making promises that he doesn't live up to. I don't know if that's intentional. I don't know if the show is trying to say anything with that, with that parallel, if it's intentionally there, other than perhaps just different kind of parenting experiences. Curiously, though, this scene of connection between parent and child is followed up by the scene in which Eleven returns to Hopper's cabin, where he's waiting for her, and they proceed to have their... My impulse is to say knockdown dragout fight, and I struggle with this scene. It's actually not as bad as I remembered it. It is brutal, though. This is actually a very good scene. It's very well constructed. It's very well performed. It's well shot. It's everything about it is is well done. I mean, you understand the motivations of both parties. You understand exactly where they're all coming from. Neither of them really does anything that's out of character. Hopper's line of you have to understand that there are consequences for your actions, even though I don't think that that's an appropriate thing to say in the context of this scene, I do think that that is kind of Eleven's arc in this season summed up. This is essentially what she is going to learn in the next several episodes. She's never had kind of free and unhindered use of her power before. It's what I said about her knocking Max off her skateboard. She's been so regimented and so monitored and so controlled when it comes to her powers that she's never had 
just free reign. And because her childhood, her her concept of, of life is so skewed, and then even now, she's still essentially kept in one to two rooms all day every day with really only Hopper for company, and then the false interaction with the, the anyone who's on the television screen, she doesn't really have a sense of a good way to, to kind of keep herself in check in terms of her power and what using her power on other people means. Part of the reason I love season two so much, specifically when it comes to Elle, is because this is really important, I think, to her as a character and as a person in tandem with her being able to live a free life and not be tucked away in Hopper's cabin all the time. It's also about learning what did, what kind of power wielder does she want to be? You know, what does she want to actually make her philosophy be about her powers? And it's a lot to ask of a 14-year-old girl, especially with all of the experiences and traumas that she has had. But I think that the show, choosing to kind of lean into that and ask those questions rather than just kind of give those to Elle, where do you draw the line? So you get that question stated it's weird that it comes from Hopper because I don't think that really that's where he's even coming from. And he's coming from a place of PTSD. He's coming from a place of fear. He's not only thinking about everything that happened last season to Will, to all of the other people in their community, but also because of Sarah. And then as Heidi and I discussed in Chapter 8, The Upside Down from season one, there may be some guilt in play here. The fact that he basically was about to give the lab L, which is why one of the only things I don't, I don't, you know, might be slightly out of character for him is him saying, like, I can give you back to the lab. That felt a little cruel. These two are such stubborn powerhouses. Like, this scene I feel like was inevitable. But it did make me think of something that, um, that Heidi said actually in chapter one of season one, which was in regards to the boys having this information for Hopper and him saying, no, go home. Maybe the smarter move would be, it would have been for him to have let them join the search for Will so that they could have been involved in some way, in a way that he could kind of keep an eye on them so that they wouldn't go off by themselves. Because the boys obviously don't do that. They immediately go back out looking for Will in spite of him saying like, don't do it. Same thing here. I think if he had let her go out as the ghost, it would have made such a difference. I think it would have shown him it is somewhat safe for him to make, you know, make the slight allowance and everything would have been okay. It would have let Eleven have a little bit of breathing room, some fresh air. She could have gotten to see Mike and Lucas and Dustin. I think that would have helped everyone. But in this scene, you know, not only was her frustration building, but also his, his, he just loses his temper. I think forgets about the fact that she has these powers. I had thought at one point, Hop, you know, she can kill you with a thought, right? Like River Tam, I can kill you with my brain. But I also think that Maybe he doesn't know that, you know, he didn't really interact with her much last season. She has had to work over the course of the last year to improve her powers and practice with her powers. So it is entirely possible that he doesn't, you know, no one really knows, including Elle, like how much power she actually has. All of that said, I never feel that Eleven is any is in any physical danger from Hopper, and I think that's important. And I don't just mean because she has powers and she can fight back. I mean, just generally, I don't- I think he's angry, but I never think that he's in any- he's going to physically harm her. That's not how the scene is pr- presented. The danger is in what they're saying to one another. One thing that I thought was funny is it was kind of like, I understand, I don't agree with, but I understand that Hopper is trying to punish her and make her feel the consequences of her actions, but in this case, taking away the television- that is her main motivation for for staying there. Take that away, Hop. You really don't think that's just going to increase her wanting to leave? It, it felt like a decision made in anger and not from like a thinking her punishment through kind of place. And it's significantly more than just 
hey, teenager, I'm going to take your television away. No, it's more than that. It's the fact that she's, that's, you know, your only window to the outside world. So of course she's going to react that way. I mean, technically she has her powers as well, but up until I think later in this episode, when she uses the radio to create the static, she kind of needs the TV for that too. On a less dramatic note, the next morning at the Wheeler's home is breakfast, and Nancy tells Karen, yeah, I'm gonna go over to Stacy's, and we're gonna have a girl's night, and after which, Nancy goes out and meets Jonathan in, in his car. She tells him, you don't have to do this, so we get that the repetition of that statement again, and he says, would you stop saying that? Ironic, given that he's gonna say it a little bit later. Joyce calls the police station several times looking for Hopper, but he's not there. Surprise, surprise. And Will comes out of his room and he still feels weird. He says, it's like I haven't quite woken up yet. I love that because it's such a good phrase. It's such a common phrase. I mean, I feel like I've said that before when I'm feeling groggy. But at the same time, knowing what we know with context, that's definitely not what's going on. He's definitely, it's it's almost like he's he's starting to recede. And I just thought that was really, really cool. Joyce takes his temperature and it's very, very low. This is definitely a, a weird me problem, but... I know what they're doing, but I can't help but think of the the children's book, The Stranger, which I actually made a short film out of, because uh, in that there's a mysterious stranger who, it's a children's book by Chris Van Allsburg, who also wrote and illustrated The Polar Express and Jumanji, amongst many, many, many others. And The Stranger t- is takes place on a farm, and this, there's a mysterious stranger who gets hurt, and so the family takes him in. And one of the mysterious things about him is that his temperature um, is very, very low, much like this. Like the doctor thinks his thermometer's broken in the story. So I think of that every time I see this scene. Will, though, says, you said no doctors. And Joyce says, and I meant it. I don't think that that's actually in character for Will. That feels like that's coming more from the mind flare or the shadow monster as we get to know it. We don't really hear it called the mind flare until very late in the season. They refer to it as the shadow monster through most of the season. But I do think that in, in this scene, when Will says that, I think that's the first kind of like tendrils. I don't, I don't get the impression that Will would have been too scared to go based on the way that he didn't like going to the lab, but that just strikes me as like an, a pre precursor to the whole being afraid of getting into the hot water. I do have to wonder if they had gone to the lab at this point, how different would this have turned out? But maybe that is Will being genuinely afraid. It just didn't read that way to me. Dustin, meanwhile, feeds Dart in the morning. Hmm. Then swing over to school where he can't find the rest of the party. And he goes around the back and finds them digging through the dumpster looking for Dart. There's this back and forth between Mr. Clark talking about the nature of fear and Will approaching the bathtub. And it's creepy AF. At Hopper's cabin, we get what looks like the beginnings of a reconciliation between them. Sounds like Hopper is building towards an apology. But no. I mean, you can hear it in his voice. He knows that he needs to apologize. He knows that he went too far, but he just, he can't quite do it. So he says, you know, make sure this place is cleaned up. It definitely has a the commanding, I did nothing wrong, I'm in charge tone to it. When he gets into the truck, he hears Flo going, for my sake, would you please deal with Joyce Byers? Basketball again. We get another face-off between Steve and Billy on the court. Billy taunts him, then knocks him down, then offers him a hand up gives him a tip, and then drops him back on the ground again. That's followed by the scene in the shower, where Billy is very clearly, very continuously watching Steve, offers him weird sort of moral support. Like, well, it's just not your day, don't worry about it. Tommy interjects with the princess and 
Jonathan Byers just went off together. You guys have only been broken up for one day. Yeah, it sucks to be you, not your week. And man, oh man, does Tommy enjoy making Steve feel like shit. I stand by what I said last season. This is a character that like, as far as I'm concerned, I don't think we saw him at all in season three, but I mean, talk about wanting consequences for actions. Mm, I hate him so much. And that's not to say that the actor is doing a terrible job or I dislike the actor. Like, he's fantastic because, again, man, oh man, do you hate this character. And that's the intention. That's the point. So, job well done. Billy continues to offer consolation of sorts. Pretty boy like you doesn't have anything to worry about. Plenty of bitches in the sea. As Steve is putting soap on his face and his hair, that's when Billy turns the water off, then walks away and says, I'll be sure to leave you some. I don't know how to read this in any other way other than Billy is 100% into Steve. Like, that's not a judgment. It's not anything. It's just I can't see it in any other context. I I know that Dacre Montgomery has said that he did not play it with that in mind, that that was not his intention, but I don't know how that's possible. I, I really don't. This combined with the scene in the car last episode with Max, I think I had speculated or just assumed that it had something to do with Billy's sexuality or the fact that his dad found out or something. And so they were like, well, we'll just pick up and move and that'll solve our problems. Like something, something like that. But they really like, I mean, careened so far away from that in season three. At the park, Jonathan and Nancy wait for theoretically Mrs. Holland. It's curious, a lot of the like the stakes feel a lot lower when you know that they're actually intentionally waiting for the lab. You know, like with horror, the spy thriller is not one of my preferred genres, so to my knowledge, this is a really well-executed homage, I guess, to that, to that genre, that this fits right in with that, the same way that a lot of their other horror moments are very exemplary of, of the horror genre, but I wouldn't know for sure it works, works for me. And so they get to the car, engine won't start, and they are slowly but surely surrounded by Hawkins Lab undercover folks. Meanwhile, Hopper arrives at the buyers, which is now freezing. Hopper talks to Will and to Joyce. They try to work with Will to get the information about what's going on, what he means by he now just knows things. He has these, just these intuitions, these feelings, these now memories. Considering that what he's talking about is essentially possession, this is really beautifully written. It's a surprisingly good way, I think, to depict what that might feel like. And I don't know if they're pulling from The Exorcist or any other, like, demon possession storylines, but it really, really worked for me. And it's sad, and it's scary, and it's creepy all at the same time. And we get these flashes of, of the vines and the tunnels. And after seeing the drawing up on the wall of Will the Wise, Joyce thinks, what if you draw it? As these drawings start to fly, you know, off the desk, that's when the phone is ringing, but Joyce doesn't pick up, neither does Hopper. But Mike is calling when no one answers. He goes and says, we need, we all need to meet in the AV club room. Party members only. Dustin and Lucas are kind of like, Mike, come on. And he says, no, non-negotiable. His tone is mean, especially at that age, being deliberately excluded. It, it sucks. It really sucks. So I actually stand kind of in awe of Max being able to be like, no, you know what? Fuck you guys. You know, later when she talks to Lucas, we'll come back to that later. When they go into the AV club room, yeah, Mike's whole demeanor changes. It, it, you, you get to see Mike being what he's really like. I think we have this problem. Let's figure it out. I'm concerned for Will. He says to to them, to the other boys, Will didn't want me to tell anyone, which I think is a nice way to not make them feel left out in the moment. To say like he didn't want me to tell anyone, as opposed to don't tell the others, meaning them specifically. They react exactly the way we would expect. They're like, okay, 
Well, can it hurt him? Is he in danger? They do. They're using D&D as the metaphor because, you know, Mike says, but this isn't D&D, this is real life. But they're using that as the metaphor, at least as a place to start. But I mean, but they both take it super seriously and they don't brush it off and they don't, and they also don't get mad, They're all, they, I, which I think is hugely important. They don't go, why didn't Will tell us this? They just start trying to solve the problem. On the one hand, I think that's efficiency of plot. Like they're trying to, you know, they don't want to have to belabor this point, go through all those motions, so they just kind of skip it. But I also think as a result of that, it does really show their character that they're not even going to go there. They're not interested in it. It's just, okay, he's having a hard time. How do we how do we help him out of this tough spot? It just continues to demonstrate what I like about these two these two guys so much because they're, you know, just the way that they are. Of course, this is tinged a little bit with the fact that Dustin is like, why do we have to find art still? And Mike's then repetition of because he's associated with the upside down. I mean, this is we're covering exactly the same territory we did last time. And, but now Dustin looks a little uncomfortable. As I, I don't think it's unfair to say that he probably should. Did I screw up? Now here's, here's an odd sidebar, but it did occur to me on this rewatch how much of them not including Max about everything, particularly the stuff about Will. I mean, I know that the majority of that is because they've been told not to, that there is the level of danger that it involves, that everyone who knows about it then is part of, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I also kind of wonder if there's a little bit of like, Will's history and his experience, it's like how much of it is just simply not theirs to tell? It's his experience. For them to give her that information, especially without Will there, if I was in Lucas's position as an adult and I had someone like in my community who was trying to ask me about that, I think my reaction might be like, look, if this is something you're really interested in knowing from a place of concern about this other person, if you're really genuinely concerned and want to help, because he's sensitive about it. I mean, Lucas does say he's sensitive about it, understandably. You know, if we were talking about something more real world, like, you know, if it was kidnapping, because that's probably what Max is thinking, the consequences of you knowing this are very widespread. And maybe he just point blank doesn't want people to know about it. So I think there, that that might be a factor of like, it's not really our secret to tell. And there's a level of like their own autonomy involved. And it is delegate and it is cumbersome and it is a lot of shades of gray and it's very complex and it's not a simple you're in or you're out kind of thing. But to sum up, I just really appreciate the characterization with the way that the the other two boys between, you know, Dustin and Lucas respond and how, at least as far as they are concerned, maybe not so much with Mike, their choice to keep things separate from from Max, I think makes a lot of sense. And I, I like that you can see them struggling with that and them feeling conflicted by following Mike's lead, even though I think both of them, even Dustin's kind of, Mike, come on, reaction is, could be even considered, it could, you know, you could argue that that's actually in response to the way that he treats Max, not even so much about not letting her in. Mike plans to go over to the buyers after school for more information while they continue to look for Dart. And meanwhile, over at Hopper's cabin, Eleven is cleaning up you know, as she was instructed to do. Although she does try to make the, the TV work on her own, which I thought was cute and totally understandable. She finds the trap door in the floor and underneath she finds a bunch of boxes, one of which says Hawkins Lab. So she pulls it out and starts looking through it. Over at the lab, Nancy gets a little restless in the waiting room, the interrogation room that we've seen before, or at least one like it. And she decides to yell at the cameras, which prompts Owens to come in. And I don't know if he was waiting for her to say something or if it just the timing happened to be perfect, but he kind of goes, okay, let me take you on a walk. And off they go. 
I know that on the Hawkins report, they talked about how the likelihood of them being able, of Jonathan and Nancy being able to sneak in the tape recorder is pretty unlikely because they at least found it very hard to believe that the the lab guys wouldn't have checked them for things like weapons, if nothing else. And especially if they are so hyper concerned about secrecy, I think it's one of those things where like they probably just didn't address it and hoped no one would think about it. And I find it doesn't bother me, but it is something that I, I did have to admit. Like, yeah, you know, having heard them say that, I can't unsee it or unthink it. But again, I, I don't really care. They go on this tour. Owens takes them down and explains that they are fully aware that there were mistakes that were made, but ultimately secrecy is the most important thing here. What if the Soviets get it? What if another, what if one of our enemies gets it? Which I think is hilarious given the fact that that essentially is the whole impetus for season three. And so they get a look at the gate. On this rewatch, I found that I was surprised how up until this point, I've always been totally on Nancy's side, 100%. They killed Barb. They completely screwed Will over and the rest of the buyers, Jonathan and, and Joyce. So yes, as she says later, burn the lab to the ground. But now I find that it's kind of like, okay, well, if Eleven hadn't entered the picture, if Eleven doesn't close the gate, they're not offering an alternative. They don't have an alternative plan, which is fine up until the scene in the car later after they have the recording. And it's like now knowing what they know, it doesn't alter their plans at all. So it ends up being a conflation on both sides. You know, there really isn't any ownership of Barb's death. There's no responsibility being taken. There's no acknowledgement being taken. And it's, they're not looking out for the Hollands in any way. There's no making up for that. It's just, yeah, that happened. And so Owens has, has skipped and really the whole lab has jumped to the fixing the problem. So going back to the whole six farms worth of crops got destroyed in one night from, from the vines, from the tunnels. This is something that, that, A, they're not really taking care of it, but if they leave burning the lab to the ground, that's not really a solution because the gate is still there. And as far as I know, Jonathan and Nancy don't have any idea about how to close it. So it's very convenient that these different groups come together at the end so that they can close the gate. Because if not, I don't know that just that burning to burning the lab to the ground at that point really would have been in everyone's best interest. Like, I still completely get where Nancy's coming from, and I do think justice for Barb, justice for the Hollands, but it's unfortunate that you have these two extremes working at the same time, because I do think that in spite of the, the mistakes that Owens is talking about, I do think that they are trying to to do what they can to fix this because we're, we're seeing how dangerous it is and what's happening to Will and what's happening to these farms. So yeah, it was just, it was a surprising kind of turn of my own perspective on this, how just destroying it and kicking them out completely, that's probably a bad idea. I mean, just as an example, if they kicked them out and they all left and the gate was still there, what would that have meant for Will? Just again, kind of a, kind of a new perspective this time around. And speaking of Will, back at the buyer's house, Joyce and Hopper try to make sense of all of the drawings and eventually they piece together the pattern. They don't know what it is. And then Hopper figures out that it's vines. Massive, massive props to the production design and the art department on this one, because that is a... I mean, maybe it's deceptive in how it looks on screen, but that's a lot of drawings and trying to keep that many individual pieces of paper straight. I mean, there must have been some kind of code or system that they put in place, but just, yeah, mad props. Like, I mean, literally, like just super duper big, huge shout out to those, to that team. So the production designer is still Chris Trujillo. 
The art direction was by Sean Brennan, and set decoration was Jess Royal. You guys rock. As well as all the PAs and like grips and electric that probably helped out with that too. Because <laughs> it's already not a terribly big set. So then having so much of it covered in these sheets of paper that probably couldn't get like had to stay there probably for a long time. Just yeah, keeping track of it, making sure no one stepped on, stepped on like just wow. This is where we get the scene between Lucas and Max outside of Hawkins Middle at the end of the day. And I have a lot of respect for the way she stands up for herself here. It felt really cool to see her have that confidence, even though she's she's not exactly enjoying it. This is not a fun moment for her. So there's a, there's a little bit of like wish fulfillment happening here, at least on my part, which is also, you know, as far as she's concerned about like the, you're giving me mixed signals. It's like they had a moment in the gym and then all of that's gone. So her being like, I'd rather go be by myself and do my own thing like I was doing in the first place, rather than have you guys jerk me around like this. Not interested. I do the really, really love Kayla McLaughlin's performance here too, because straight up, I really love his delivery of the line as regards L when he says, that was just, just different. I don't know that I was shipping these two already, but I definitely like seeing them in these early stages before I think any kind of romantic subtext actually starts to form. For, for precisely that reason, they're not actually interacting in a romantic fashion here. They're they're getting to know one another, they're having these interactions in a platonic way that I think will then give them the place to build from. I Like I said, I, I just really like this scene and I like the way they play off each other. It's just really, really good. I also like in this scene the continuity of the fact that you can see Billy, he's out of focus, but if you are if you look for him, he's over Max's shoulder. You can see him over there from, I think, the first time you she spins around and you get that reverse over the shoulder on her. So he sees their entire interaction, which includes quite a few moments of her expressing her anger and her frustration, which is, you know, her body language, even though it's not super theatrical, it's very clear that she's upset, which is why he says in a, in a minute, why are you so upset? Because he saw their entire conversation. I really appreciated that continuity note. But after the scene with Lucas, that's when she skates up to Billy. Mm. The music does a lot of heavy lifting right here. It just, it turns into, it's a combination of tracks. Most of this is the track Photos in the Woods from the first season soundtrack by Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein. And then the end of the scene is a track, it shifts into a track called The Growing by the Haxon Cloak or Bobby Krillick, I think is how you pronounce his name. It's just, it's a really effective use of, of music in this moment because you can feel the sinister nature of what Billy is about before he says a word, really sets the mood, which is of is kind of a pretty strong pivot from what we just saw between Max and Lucas. So... Billy lights up a cigarette in the car and doesn't doesn't take off right away. Starts asking her about what that conversation was and was he bothering you and tells her that you're a piece of shit but we're family now so I'm stuck looking after you. He's not doing this because he has any interest in Max as a person. It's because of Neil and because Neil has tasked him with this and he's afraid of Neil. And so knowing that gives the scene extra context. It doesn't change any of his behavior, though. I don't think I'm saying anything new. I don't think it's a hot take for me to say that this this interaction is pretty awful. You know, she starts to add a snarky reply when he grabs her hand and just leans in. And the way that he uses his physicality to invade her space and to also just, I mean, the just constant eye contact. He doesn't need the mind flare 
to make him evil. We have this otherworldly story with monsters from another dimension and we have de demonic possession essentially and we have this girl with powers and we have this sci-fi lab experimentation stuff. But then also you have this guy. This is the second of two scenes, you know, so far of him and Max in a car and it's legitimately terrifying. Domineering, volatile, racist. This is something that exists in the real world. And I think that people often forget about this scene and scenes like it from season two. When we get to season three, the interest in behind Billy's character shifts. And I think that moments like this are glossed over and they want us to forget that these moments happened. Because to be brutally honest, there's no acknowledgement of, of these moments. These moments are never... He never has to account for these. There's never any acknowledgement in season three of the fact about the fact that he's racist. That never gets addressed. The only kind of comeuppance that Billy gets is Max standing up for herself and threatening him and saying, I'm done being intimidated by you. And he agrees to leave her alone. That's very different than him actually having to, he is not held accountable for moments like this. And it's sort of a thing of like, well, if they weren't interested in doing that work and doing that exploration and really having some of these conversations, which I fully think that the show would have been capable of doing based on the way that this season and season one were written, then they should never have gone here in the first place. That's actually an area that I really am very dissatisfied with Stranger Things as a whole. I think they could have done so much better. And that's why the disappointment is so strong. Hopper drives out to one of the fields, the rotting fields, and starts digging. That's mostly where we get that second track, the growing. Also, <laughs> seeing Hopper right on the heels of that scene with Billy and Max, I have to say that that's another thing that I'm really bummed about. I mean, talk about interact character interactions. The way he, that Hopper faces off with Elle, I would have loved to have seen an interaction between Hopper and Billy. What would that have looked like? Would love to have seen Hopper, like, just put Billy in his place. Or, I don't know, like, kind of do what he did for Jonathan in season one. Like, kind of be like, hey, do you need a father figure? But in the way that he didn't do, you know, the, like, you can talk to me, son. You know, as Heidi described it with Jonathan, like, he found a way to communicate. Like, that would have been cool. I just, I think that could have been, could have been neat. And we won't get that opportunity. But speaking of L, we're... We cut back over to the cabin where she's looking through the files and she sees the name Terry Ives and the name Jane Ives. And she says, she sees the picture of Brenner, it says Papa. And then this is when she uses the radio to tap into her powers to try to find Terry Ives. In the astral plane, we see her, Terry Ives is doing the, the, the word loop, which we didn't get in season one. But that's interrupted when she opens her eyes and sees Elle. They make eye contact and she says Jane. And as Eleven makes contact, Terry disappears. Elle starts crying out for her. And back in the real world, she's just sobbing. I mean, it's been said so many times by now, but yeah, Millie Bobby Brown is so good. Just how much more emotional turmoil can this child go through? Mike goes to the buyer's house as planned. And when Joyce won't let him in, he says, this is about the shadow monster, isn't it? So now those two parties have sort of linked and over at the lab, Nancy and Jonathan are escorted off the property, or at least to their car, which now works. After they've driven away, Nancy gets the tape recorder out. And this is when Jonathan says to her, their very common exchange of, are you sure you want to do this? That's when she says, let's burn the lab. I want to burn that lab to the ground. Speaking of things burning to the ground, Dustin gets home and he goes to check in on Dart, but finds that the cage is broken and he sees the skin in there. Then he hears it roar, peeks over his chair, and sees that 
Muse has met a very unfortunate end at the hands of Dart, who has the face of a Demogorgon. And they really lay it on thick with the fact that you see Mrs. Henderson, you know, putting food in Muse's food bowl when Dustin gets there. It's like, ugh. Needless to say, Heidi's not a fan of this, and neither am I come to that. I will never forget the feeling, though, on that first watch of realizing what was happening, you know, along with Dustin, really, but that feeling of recognition of, like, when Dart turns around and the, the face, that unmistakable face of the Demogorgon, those petals opening and all those teeth. I figured something was up with Dart, but I certainly had not predicted this. I had not seen it coming. Maybe, maybe other people did. I certainly didn't. I, I mean, like I said, I got the sense that something foreboding was happening, but it, it was definitely a now what moment. Like, I think I was scared for Dustin's safety, actually, because if Dart attacked Muse, who's to say it's a Demogorgon? Who's to say he, w I mean, it's a Demodog, but we don't know that. We didn't know that at that point. But what if he went after Dustin? So much happening in that one moment. The full weight of this mistake, when you want to talk about mistakes, hitting Dustin in this moment of like, yeah, 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 you done fucked up this time. And the music here is the track Possessed from the OST, which is actually kind of an ironic title given that Will is the one being possessed, but it, oh, it's the perfect music track for it. I also, in my memory, always think that this is the last shot. Like, I always think that Dart turns around, it screeches with the, the petals open, and that that's where the episode ends. But it doesn't end there. We get one last bit, and that's we go back to Hopper, still digging in the field, breaks through the gummy-like surface, and he's able to get a hole, and he, he drops into the... <laughs> To, the, to this underground passage. It makes perfect sense for Hopper to do this, but it's also like, dude, what are you doing? Like, why aren't you calling for backup? Why aren't you telling Callahan and Powell where you are? And I think he's just on a mission and isn't stopping to think, but, but Hopper! And this is when we get that amazing last shot where the camera turns upside down with the lens flare because from his flashlight. It's just, it is a beautiful, beautiful shot. Not just, I mean, not just aesthetically, which it is, it's gorgeous to look at. It's just a beautiful visual, but it also the, the, the meaning and layering that it adds. I don't know what the actual factual textual canon explanation for what the tunnels are, like in terms of are they actually upside down? Like, is are, do you go through into the upside down when you go into these tunnels? Or is it like in our world, but it's a passage to the upside down? I kind of like personally headcanon that it's sort of a crossover. It's almost like kind of a limbo. It's sort of both where the two overlap. If that's the case, I kind of feel like that's what this shot is communicating to us, that Hopper is kind of in the upside down now. And also just kind of from a sort of a metaphorical, like not connecting to the upside down as a place, but just the idea that like everything is shifting. Everything's turning upside down because this is very different from what you saw last year. So everything is shifting. Everything is turning upside down perfect place to end this episode. Although there is a sound effect right when it's cuts to black and it's this like, it almost sounds like a really big like grandfather or like even like bell tower kind of clock chime. I don't understand the meaning of that, the significance of that. Like, is it a time's up kind of thing? But but on what exactly? 
I don't know. It doesn't sound casual. It sounds like it's in, it's there for a reason, but I don't know what that reason is. So, but given the fact that I just spent so much time complimenting this shot and also mentioned the continuity note with the cinematography, seeing Billy over Max's shoulder in the earlier scene and a couple of other things throughout, just I really like the visual style of this episode. And I think it's important just to note that this this the director of photography on this episode was Todd Campbell, as opposed to Tim Ives and, and any of the other cinematographers that they've had. Because this episode really does feel like Stranger Things. You know, visually it has the the right style. It fits in with all the others, but it also kind of has a bit of a unique panache in its own right. So just wanted to give him a shout out. And then there's no music over the closing credits. It's just ambient sound atmosphere, which is surprisingly ominous because it's like we're not going away. We're, we're, st- we're still there with Hopper, I guess, to some degree. I just, it's a really, really cool, like, everything just kind of stopped. So what an episode. I feel like I say that a lot, but I like the way in which some of the stakes escalated, but some of them didn't. I'm getting to the point now, though, where I know that the stuff between Steve and Dustin is coming, but I'm eager to start getting there. And in terms of final thoughts for the episode, though, I, I really don't have a lot more to add apart from what I've already said. Although I think this episode, if I was doing a thematic reading for the for Stranger Things for these episodes, the way that they do on, say, the Harry Potter and the Secret Text podcast, which I'm a big fan of. I think probably what I would go for here would be perspective. I think this episode really does this kind of amazing job of, like, really making, forcing you to look at these different perspectives, and you do, I, there's no one's perspective in this episode that I don't understand. Everyone's perspective is very clear and understandable and motivated. I don't agree with all of the perspectives, but I also agree with a lot of them in because knowing understanding a lot of those perspectives gives you reason to to kind of have a little bit of of empathy and 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 like understanding that kind of crosses over more than just basic comprehension billy for example nah nah there's no agreement there it's frustrating in a good way with the mike max relationship because you know what mike is going through you know that he's not really that guy he's not really that kid There's just, there's so much going on. And I think what contributes to a lot of the conflict in this episode is people not understanding each other's perspectives, either, you know, both willingly and not, you know, from ignorance and from a place of knowledge or just deciding not to, you know, I think that's what's happening with the lab and with Nancy. There's a lack of willingness to change or reconsider or reevaluate one's perspective. This is an episode that I don't tend to rewatch that often. I don't think of it a lot when I think of Stranger Things episodes, even in season two. But it, looking at it closely, I was surprised at how much there was to, to analyze and, and, and dissect and in a, in a really good way. So really enjoyed this one. I said it last time. I'm going to say it again. I continue to be impressed. Just about halfway through-ish, you know, we have an odd number of episodes this season. So I can't really say where, where exactly the half point is, but I think we're, we're, we're close. But all in all, looking forward to chapter five, Dig Dug. And with that said, that's going to conclude our contemplations on chapter four, Will the Wise. If you've got comments, questions, thoughts, join the conversation. You can find Coffee and Contemplation on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And all of those links will be in the show notes. And also, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, consider leaving us a review. You can find Coffee and Contemplation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, anywhere podcasts are sold for free. Thanks again for listening. And until next time over now. Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation. My name is Robin. 
my name is. Oh, wait, I don't have my Tumblr. Shoot, what did I do with my Robin Tumblr? Where is it? Did I take it downstairs? All right. Okay. But yeah, can't wait to get to chapter five, Dig Dug.